everyone, and welcome back to Inside College Admissions, a SCORE podcast. We're excited for you to join us today for another conversation in our Deans of Admissions series. You'll hear from our guests about the fall semester during a pandemic, the admissions process, how schools are adapting, suggestions and advice for families, and much more. Our strategic advisor, Peter Van Buskirk, will guide us through the conversation today with our special guest. Now over to Peter for today's interview. Welcome to Inside College Admission, conversations with admission leaders about matters affecting the college-going process. My name is Peter Van Buskirk. Earlier this year, I was able to chat with 20 deans of admission about the challenges posed to their institutions by the emerging coronavirus. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Rick Clark, who is the Director of Undergraduate Admission at Georgia Tech. Rick's been able to break away from a credential review for a few minutes to update us on the college admission process as it exists today in the era of the COVID-19. So welcome, Rick. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it, and uh, good to see you. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So, so what is life like for you now? When we talked back in March or April, uh, there was anticipation of things to come. Now, now you're in the midst of it all. What, what's, what's life like for you guys? <laughs> well, first of all, it's a little disturbing to hear you say that was only March or April. It feels like uh, about a decade ago. But anyway, <laughs> you know, we are, yeah, we're knee deep in it. As you, as you said, we just released early action one decisions, which is just for students from our state. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first year we've done it that way, and we'll be now kind of turning our attention fully to EA2, which is for non-residents and international students. And so, you know, honestly, we uh, we worked hard last week to get those decisions finalized for, for Georgia students, and now we're just right back into day-to-day, you know, file review. And there are plenty. We are up about 25% year over year, so uh, no shortage of, of applications to... Are you surprised by that? Are you surprised by that, given everything that's transpired over the last 10 months? I am a little. I, I mean, I'm never going to bet against Georgia Tech. That's one thing I've learned over the last little bit of time. But honestly, I, I did think we would go down or be flat in international applications. So I was surprised to see us up. Now, the one thing I would say is because we moved our application for international students back two weeks, even though it's just two weeks, from October 15th to November 1, we put ourselves on a more traditional calendar in doing that. And I'm wondering if uh, we might have front-loaded some of those international applications a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not surprised that we're up Georgia, you know, 22%, but, you know, the the international group did kind of surprise me a little bit, I would say. Now, for the benefit of those who are listening here, early decision, early action are two different animals. And, and I'm was listening carefully to you say that you were dealing with early action. How, how would you help folks who are listening differentiate between the two? And, and how does early action factor into your enrollment process? Sure. And, and actually, that's, a, that's an important distinction this year, I'd say, in particular, because, you know, early action basically means, hey, you apply a little bit earlier and you hear a little bit earlier but you are, you're not bound to attend those schools that, that may admit you. And in many cases, you have the ability to apply to multiple schools that have EA programs versus a early decision or an ED program where you know, that's binding and that's oftentimes singular and you're saying that either you're not applying to those other institutions or if you are in fact admitted, you're going to rescind those applications. So 
Uh, actually, even as you say that, I feel like, you know, especially in COVID world, I mean, it'd be very interesting to see what's happening in some of those ED programs and whether or not some of these EAs are picking up apps because of financial implications and, and some of the things that we know have occurred uh, and transpired or that people might be anticipating coming, you know, even in the spring. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I think for a long time, the notion about early decision is that the at most institutions, an early decision application improves the chance of admission fairly measurably. Uh, is that the case with early action as well? Is there a statistical advantage to the student who applies early action? You know, for our Georgia students, as a public institution, mm-hmm. straight looking at the numbers, the admit rate is higher, you know, from early action to regular. However, hmm. what I would say to that is it's more of a it's just just more of the fact that you have talented students in the state who know that this might either be their first choice or because, as you said earlier, it's not binding. Why not? I'm going to apply anyway. I feel good about my record and my credentials. I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. Now, I'm kind of glad in some ways that we've separated out uh, this year EA1 and 2 because in some ways before people, and especially out-of-state students, would look at those EA numbers and the Georgia students were actually inflating the admit rate. And so there was more of a gap between early action and regular decision than I think you'll see this year, because now what you've got is just non-residents and international in, e, in EA2. And that, I believe that gap will probably be less uh, going forward. And so that'll make for, I think, better conversations. And, and even if people are just looking at the numbers. In fact, I wrote a blog a couple weeks ago, kind of comparing admissions with elections and how you should never take one number at face value and you always have to ask questions upon questions with any one number, right? I, w- I would imagine that you're uniquely positioned to write that blog right now too. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what, no shortage of robocalls coming in here in, a, in Georgia right now. That's for sure. I'll bet. Well, uh, with regard to the applicant process this year, the test option has become a big deal. Tell us how that's working for you, especially through the early reads so far. Yeah. Well, ironically, I thought by going test optional, we'd be talking about testing less. <laughs> that really? has, not, has not turned out to be the case. It feels like going test optional is only added to people's questions surrounding testing and what should we do and does it really mean optional and do I have a better chance? But, you know, do I really kind of wink, wink, nod, nod? What can you tell me when everybody else isn't listening? Um, you know, So far, what we've seen is that of our applicants, um, about 31% have said, I want to be reviewed without my tests. All right. Um, Now, do they have them and just don't want us to look at them? Could they not get them at all? I don't know. I don't know. Um, That number there, you know, again, back to this idea of numbers within the numbers, our Georgia students uh, are closer to 40%. They're at about 38, 39% of those saying they want to be reviewed without their scores. And so again, hard to know. I mean, we've had plenty of testing centers canceled in our state. It could be that they don't have them at all, or it could be that they're thinking, well, great, you know, um, Georgia Tech is, is a place I want to go. I don't need to sweat trying to get this test, and, and I'm not going to you know, worry about that. What I've found interesting is if you look at first-generation students, that number of students overall, both for Georgia and outside the state, is closer to 50 I think we're at 55 or 57% saying they do not want us to look at scores. So, you know, I think that speaks a little bit to access. It's, you know, it speaks a little bit to counseling. There's a lot we can certainly talk about or read into that gap in 
preference, you know, on whether or not they want us to look at their scores. Now, now you say you're, you're fielding a lot of questions about testing. Would, would one of those questions sound like, well, won't you assume my scores are low if I don't send them in? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's right. That could, that how, is, do you, how do you reassure that family? Man, I wish that there was some kind of sign we could give them, you know, like a, a Boy Scout sign or a Jedi mind trick sign or something to just say we really mean that, you know, if you say that you don't want to send in these scores, it's fine with us. And, and we feel very confident, you know, making decisions without it. And, and honestly, I feel like Georgia Tech is a place where, you know, that should hold a little more credence because, the SAT, I mean, it barely touches pre-calculus. And most of our applicants, 97% plus of our students are coming in with calculus or higher. So, you know, it's not like we're getting a bunch of, you know, great confidence in their math skills from the uh, test scores, you know. So I think in that regard, <laughs> hopefully we can have a bit of a better conversation if people will actually listen to what we're saying. Now, um I would imagine that, that it's going to take a couple of years for Georgia Tech to fully evaluate the efficacy of all of this. I mean, it, on, the, on the one hand, you can, you can measure the enthusiasm through the numbers of students who apply, but when, when you take a step back, testing is supposed to help you predict the success of a student in the first year of college. Now, now you have to wait a while to see how that works out. Now, how is that working for you and your colleagues in the review room? I mean, <laughs> you've, you've got the application without the test result. When we did it for the first few years, it was liberating. Do you find that to be the case or do you find yourself looking for a number that'll help you? Yeah. I mean, I guess if I'm honest, I'd say a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that we've certainly run the numbers over the last five to 10 years and we've seen a, a diminishing correlation between testing and, and GPA retention rate, graduation rate. So we know that we don't really need those scores, but you know, a lot of us have been here a while or we've been, you know, plenty of people on our staff have been at other schools where tests just have always been there. And mm -hmm. so I think that natural leaning towards where is it, or maybe a bit of a crutch or another reassuring point is something that can at times be missed. But you know, then again, earlier today, I was emailing back to a father of a, a son, you know, Georgia Tech legacy, who we denied kid has a 36 ACT and sent that in, you know, and that wasn't the reason that we would have taken the kid. It wasn't the reason we would have denied the kid. If, if later on, they came back and said they had a 24, but didn't send it, you know, we would have, we made the decision based on all those other factors right? Not based on the testing. So it is so interesting how you could be talking to one family one hour in one situation and the very next hour, somebody's making the converse argument and you're still basically saying the same thing. So what I hear you saying is that the, the research you've done, the experience you've had really makes you and your colleagues comfortable in, in, in looking at candidates without test results, focusing on work done in the classroom, rigor achieved and performance achieved in that rigor and, and that that all squares pretty well for you then. Definitely. I mean, and that's always where we've really spent most of our time, you know, and that's, that's what's been the linchpin anyway. And then obviously you couple that with most of them are good in the classroom. They've taken good classes, they've done well. And so, you know, you pretty quickly then get into, well, what else, you know, what, what, what's their character and what's their involvement look like? What's their impact on others? And how's that going to probably transfer over to, you know, coming onto campus? So you anticipated me well, because I was going to ask what the tiebreaker tends to be when you're looking at, at all these high profile students. So much more emphasis than on the subjective side. Mm -hmm. No question. I mean, 
I actually, you know, you can't see it right now, but I'm looking down diagonally from where I'm standing. There's a stool. And this has been a good metaphor for me. And, and I feel like, you know, that, that, that thing has five legs on, on the stool. And in the past, testing, yes, has been one of those legs. And that effectively has been cut out this year in large part. But I mean, the stool can still stand and, and the reliance on it can still to carry the weight. And so that's really been sort of what we've been talking our staff through. And now, of course, we're talking families through, especially as we're just coming out of this round of decisions. Now, testing has another role in, in a lot of admission operations at the front end in terms of identifying prospects. It, it seems that with 60% more test optional schools this year over last year, some would suggest that what's going on right now could be the death knell of, of testing, at least as we've known it in, in college admission. How do you weigh in on that? Do you, do you see it as continuing to be a, a prominent part of the college going landscape? But that's part one of the question, but part two, you know, as I mentioned, it's the front end is one way of identifying prospects. Uh, it's part of the lead generation too. Yeah. How much do you rely on that? And if not, uh, what do your thoughts seem to be going now in terms of replacing it? That's a great question. And obviously you have years of experience and are definitely an insider in this world. And it's, but that's a part of the conversation most people don't get or understand. So I guess let's start with the first part and, and I'll just say, yes, I think it's an inflection point. I guess I think that there will be a number of schools who were not, are now, and will stay test optional. Mm -hmm. More than just in a one-year pilot, more than just in a three-year pilot. I think we've really turned a page here on the, the you know, kind of critical mass of schools that will continue to sustain test optional policies. That said, my own you know, personal agenda or desires aside, I don't think that this is the death knell uh, to, to testing in America. And for a couple quick reasons. One, public systems, I believe, especially in the South, just because that's my kind of culture and environment, I can't say that it's totally untrue other places, just what I'm most familiar with. I believe once testing centers are again accessible and available, mm -hmm. they're going to they're gonna go right back to having their systems uh, require those tests. That I mean, for whether it be for merit scholarships, whether it be for lottery-driven scholarships like we have here in our state, whether it be because of the strong lobbying groups that the testing uh, agencies have, whether it just be because as Americans, that's deeply ingrained in our culture. All those things, to me, point to testing sort of coming back in a way that, that some don't believe uh, is really going to be the case. So I, I guess in some ways, I would counter some of those, those arguments. On the second side, I think that you're right. There's nothing that really replaces the type of funnel, you know, the big kind of funnel dump, if you will, right. that testing can give you. Wrong or right, I don't know where that gets replaced. I mean, you know, I'm sure you're, you're very familiar and a lot of folks obviously sitting in seats like mine around the country will talk about, you know, the surveys that are out there and the, you know, the various testing, or not testing, but the, the lead sources that, that are out there. It, that actually not for Georgia Tech so much, but I do think that that's, um, that's a, a bit unfortunate and I don't know what the replacement's gonna be there. And I think in that sense, testing isn't terrible. And there's some value in helping kids see a bigger landscape because of the fact that schools will put money into buying names, sending information to them and starting to give them invitations to programs, starting to tell them about everything they have to offer. 
that's all good stuff. And uh, I don't know if testing were to be deeply threatened, then I think we have an issue when it comes to prospecting. But as I just said earlier, I don't think testing is going away. It's go away. <laughs> <laughs> it might look different, but it's probably not going to go away. Yeah. Uh, and, and you mentioned the, the, uh, the public institutions and some of the, the large public networks of institutions in states in the South and across the country, turning them around away from a test reliant system would be like having a cruise liner uh, you know, turn around in the harbor. You know, it's, it just doesn't happen very easily. No. So, uh, another matter that, that might be popping up for you maybe more than usual has to do, especially this year, with cost and affordability. Are you finding families are approaching the process with more trepidation, having been through the ringer in 2020? And of course, we encourage them to fill out the FAFSA to get started, but the FAFSA doesn't help them much because that's looking at 2019. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of, <laughs> yeah, the whole prior, prior year thing was built on things don't change too much, right? Right. <laughs> so how's, how's that playing out for you? For folks that, uh, who are looking at Georgia Tech? Well, so, I mean, you know, thinking broadly and, and in the macro, of course, there's been a lot of information out there lately about FAFSA, you know, completion and, and certain just even those starting a FAFSA, those numbers are down drastically. So across the country, we know, uh, at least at this point in the cycle, we have a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's disconcerting. And I think as too many things that affects those at the lower SES levels to an even greater extent. So we have an equity gap that's broadening in that regard from the data we can see so far. Georgia Tech particularly, I would think I would point back to this idea of applications from in-state students are up. Most of my peers at either well-known publics around the country or flagships around the country uh, are also seeing the same thing, that resident apps are up. And I think in some ways that points back to a bit of what we're talking about, which is, you know, there could be a mindset that is more proximal to where they live mm -hmm. based either on cost, but I think there's other, you know, impacts and, and, and uh, influencers coming in there, for instance, you know, uh, access to medical care and familiarity with your radius and all the things that COVID is making us think about in a different way. So I do think it's economic and I do think it's financial, but I also wouldn't say that there aren't other influencers that are probably moving those numbers up a bit. We built in our model a higher yield for in-state students, and that is taking those type of factors into account. Are you having to do anything preemptively, though, with families with regard to the, the, the FAFSA question again, to, to say, listen... <laughs> We'll look at your 2020, but don't send that information to FAFSA, send it to us. Mm. You know, to this point, we have not been doing that. But I, I do know that that's something that some schools have, have been uh, already doing, yes. Mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a somewhat related manner, what has been your experience, both with the students enrolled or the cohort enrolling in September, but also that that's in the pipeline now for 2021 with the question about the gap year or taking a deferred year. Are you encountering much of that conversation? You know, I'm glad you asked about that. And I feel like this is something that the media definitely got wrong and probably heightened anxiety around the country because, I mean, you look at the, the Dukes of the world and, and, you know, the, the Harvards of the world, and they were hearing numbers like 15, 20% in places where they very much are locked in on residential so the idea of moving X over to the next year is literally then 
you know, whatever that in is minus X for next year's class. And that, of course, brought uh, consternation. But that is so not the story that most people are telling. You know, what I would say and what we've seen is if you're a public and you have capacity to grow, you're under pressure from your system to grow. So if you move gap year kids, and we, we allowed about 150, um, first thing you're doing is you're looking at your historical model. And for us anyway, less than 50% of gap year kids actually show up the following year. But even if that changes, and even if it is uh, half, let's just say 75, the way we built our model is X plus 75. So if our, if our first year goal is 3,300 kids and we end up with 3,375, great. You know, that's just, we got, we can house them, we can feed them, we can teach them. Mm -hmm. for, for private schools, not those kind of super uh, selective schools, I guess, you know, I think the same is true. They had retention issues. They took financial hits. If they moved a group of gap year kids over, if there's any way that they can, you know, build that into their model, even if it means slightly increasing because of what they could have lost already, both financially as well as actual enrollment then they're going to make room for that because they're in a world of hurt from a financial standpoint. So I've been trying to really reassure the senior class that that is not something they need to be overly uh, concerned with on, on the gap year kids from 2020 taking their spots. You, 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 I think we're very open about assessing the financial hit. And I think that that's sort of an unspoken element of, of this year across higher education. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that you, you give us numbers, but the sense is that, at least that I felt, that, that higher ed has taken a big financial hit. Why is that? Why, why has that happened? There, there are program costs, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of factors that come into play, but could you help us maybe understand why that would, would happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, in addition to tuition dollars, which are, which are big, you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's no doubt about that. The thing that I think a lot of people don't think about is auxiliaries, you know, uh, in many cases are a big way to generate revenue. So when you talk about enrollment, you're not just counting on their actual tuition dollars. You're talking about them living on campus, right? And so you're making money off of housing. And, you know, for us, we're, we're usually running at like a 97 to 98% occupancy rate. In the fall, we were at 57 or 58, right? So you already took a big hit there. That also means those kids aren't buying food on campus and meal plans. So you're, now you're losing money on dining. Uh, they're not parking on campus. They're not buying parking passes. They're not getting parking tickets. <laughs> you know, all these things, right, that normally happen that come into the coffers of these colleges. And that's not even, of course, to mention the concentric circle of the surrounding community that's also taking a big hit. So even if you went pivoted online and your enrollment looks the same as it did the year before, that does not mean that you're still bringing in as much money as you did the year before because of those auxiliaries, not to mention other factors too. Well, that, that pivot was expensive as well. Oh yeah. Just to go online. And so I think that that's sort of an untold story of, of this last year as well. And, and um, you know, I, I, my sense is that, that colleges and universities across the board are probably going to if you will, over-admit a little bit to make sure that the, the class is there and to make sure then that the revenue is there too. And that, that's exactly what you're speaking to. Let's talk a little bit about how your staff has managed the last six to eight months in terms of maintaining a relationship or connection with the students you're trying to, trying to recruit now, trying to bring into that applicant pool. Things aren't well, the same. Your campus probably is not open or at least not open to the extent you'd like it to be, et cetera. Things have changed. 
Yeah, that's right. You know, it's it's a mixed bag. I mean, part of me says, and, and actually in our in our uh, building on the hallway, since we're not all there, we're there in teams, so everybody goes in a day a week. Um, and so I've got these whiteboards up, you know, in our hallway, and one of them says like silver linings. One says, you know, never go back. So things, you know, so what are some of the positives that are coming out? Silver linings. What are the things we never want to go back to that we used to do a certain way? One mm-hmm. says, you know, one is keep forever. So like something we've learned through this that we want to always keep doing, you know. And one of the things I would say is, you know, we colleges in general should have always been putting out better information online than we have been, you know. Um, when technology mm-hmm. would allow for it. We should have been recording our information sessions. We should have been making those available. We should have been uh, following up with people that visited one week, the next week to have some type of touch point debrief kind of situation. And we're doing all of that now. And that's really positive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think like, honestly, even the fact that uh, some of our staff are home with their kids and their dogs coming through the back of the background and, you know, it's very personal is is a good thing because kids need to be reminded, right, that these are people on the other sides of these decisions. And it's, it is a human process at the end of the day. And it's an exchange at the end of the day. And I think we've been able to humanize that in some ways, um, which is really good and, and something I hope continues. Now, of course, the downside to that and something I'm getting worried a little bit more about as we head back into the spring is, you know, last year when, we, when the world sort of stopped and, and everything transpired, Granted, we had just released admission decisions, but a lot of our admitted kids had already visited campus as prospective students or as applicants. Mm-hmm. And this year, you know, if you look at that percentage this year, right now, I think it's at like 40% lower than it was last year because, you know, they would have done that as juniors and, and largely in the spring. And so on a yield side, I don't think that's, that's great. And, and if we can't reopen uh, in the way we would like to, in the spring, I do have some concerns about that for yield, especially from distance. Not so much the kids from our state, but going beyond that. Mm-hmm. When you say reopen as you'd like to, what is the current status of, of your campus now? Right now, oh, instructionally, we have been a blend in the fall of online. And if you wanted to build a purely online schedule, you pretty much could do that. We had in-person courses, uh, but most students did not have a purely in-person schedule. They, the, I think it, something like uh, 60% of our students had a combination of the two. That was either in-person or, or online, yeah. Our goal for the spring is to have more in-person. We were at about, I think, 10% or 12% were purely in-person. We'd like to see that number go up, but as with everything these days, right, we gotta watch health and and other cases so well it's interesting i think that 10 months ago there was great consternation about what's going on in the world and and the uncertainty i think was was causing people to kind of pull in their wings and 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 not venture much but now i think there's (laughs) after 10 months of that there's a real eagerness to get back out and and resume uh and in so many ways but not the least of which is the kids want to go to college now as we kind of wrap things up here Reflecting on on the the coronavirus uh, as it's affected families in the earlier stages of the process, 
what kinds of uh, advice uh, or what, what are a couple of questions maybe you think that families should be asking now about of Georgia Tech and other institutions as they make decisions about should I apply or I've been admitted? What, what should I know before I make any decisions kind of thing? And, and specifically, you mean as it relates to coronavirus? I think so. and, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, my thing is, of course, I always tell students, there are no questions off the table. You know, that, that, that is something I think students need to hear. You know, sometimes they are feeling like, oh, can I really ask that? Or I, I want to know this, but I'm not so sure if I feel comfortable doing it. And I, I wish more students would hear that, you know, their job is to ask questions. You know, their job is to be as educated as they can. It's a big decision and uh, no question is off the table. So along that line of uncomfortable but important (laughs) questions, you know, one of them is to ask whether it be faculty members, students, uh, admission folks, anybody they can, recent alums, whoever they can, what do they know about the short-term future of the institution and how that might impact, you know, we've seen it already, right, of, of some of these uh, schools closing down certain programs. You know, where is their emphasis now, knowing that they are coming out of a pretty acute, difficult situation, what changes are occurring? You know, and I think there's a way to phrase that so it's not threatening, it's not accusatory, but it's a very important question to ask. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how has this refocused you? What are you looking to move towards or away from going forward? I mean, that's a great question because if you're sitting there with three offers of admission and, you, and you're going to be heading into a four to five year time on campus, the short term matters to you and uh, <laughs> you should feel comfortable asking that question. I'm so glad you said that because what kids are looking at right now in terms of the short term uh, doesn't resemble in any way what their older sibling might have looked at or their neighbor might have looked at, their parent might have looked at. It's it's a very, very different animal. And I think it's, that's a really good question. So uh, thanks very much, Rick, for that, that insight. This has been great. I've, I've really enjoyed getting to hear what's going on on your campus. And you give me reason for optimism that this thing's going to move forward in, in some pretty positive ways. Uh, uh, it sounds like your early action group is a pretty healthy one for you and that, that your enrollment building is, is is going on as planned. So uh, good luck to you and and your colleagues in in that way. But uh, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope all of you have been able to listen in on this session, find this information useful and insightful as you make your plans for college. Good luck with your college planning. Take care, everybody.